As I said earlier, um, we come back to Daniel, where we left off some weeks ago. And as we um, considered the first two chapters, we reminded ourselves um, that although Daniel and his friends can teach us a great deal of what it means to be God's children in exile, in a foreign land, and in their case, in Babylon, the true hero of the book, Daniel writes not for their sake, not for us to look to Daniel and his friends, but rather to look to God. And Daniel reminds us that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. And this God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. And he's faithful to his people. And I believe as the first readers of this book in exile had these words from Daniel. I believe their hearts were, were filled with hope and joy. And last time in chapter 2, we, we saw that Daniel was aided by God, as he says, the God of heaven, to interpret the dream that had troubled King Nebuchadnezzar. But here in chapter 3, we, we read a familiar story. I believe for many of us who grew up in um, the churches, I believe chapter 3 and chapter 6, um, Daniel, uh, Daniel and the lions then, must have been familiar stories to us. And so we are reading a story that I believe many of us might have read many times. And here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, are facing their hardest test in exile. In a foreign land, they are facing a test of their faith. And it is one, it is a test that will cost their lives. It could cost their lives. See, they come in direct collision with the strongest and most powerful man of their time. Nebuchadnezzar was not a man to be joked with. He had conquered nations. He had invaded Jerusalem. He had captured them. And here they are coming face to face with him. But yeah, there is more to this story. See, their, their situation is it's a tough one. But yeah, trying to understand the difficulty of their situation, of Daniel's friends, and again, doing what I hope I have achieved in a sense in chapter 1 and 2, keeping God at the center of the story. The question that I had to settle in my mind and one that I believe Daniel's friends had to deal with, even as they faced Nebuchadnezzar, was a question, who shall we worship? Or to put it better, in a more personal term, who shall you worship? Because yes, they, they were thrown into a real fire. A fire that is a million times hotter than the candle that I lit up here. But they were there not just because they were bold or courageous. But because the answer to that question for them meant only one thing. Getting into that fire. And in trying to help us with this um, passage, I have divided it into three headings in a sense. I hope I would be able to remind us of those as we go along. From verse 1 to 7, um, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his image. From 8 to 18, three boys refuse. And then the last verse is 19 to 30, God delivers. So first, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his image. Here the story begins with the king making an enormous image of gold. The image is described as being about 27 meters high, or 90 feet tall, 27 meters tall. You think of a nine-story building. 
and about nine meters wide. And that could Im- immediately remind us of the image in his dream. You see, that image had different parts. It had a part of gold, of silver, of clay, of iron. And in interpreting that dream, Daniel had told the king that you and your kingdom represent the head of gold. Now, we do not know how long had passed, maybe weeks or months or probably years. Maybe the king had forgotten the significance of that dream. Where Daniel had reminded him, had told him, had revealed to him that his power was both limited in its duration and in its extent. His kingdom was given to him by God. And that kingdom was someday going to end. It wasn't an everlasting kingdom. But here, this image that he builds, it's in direct contradiction of that. Because that image is completely made of gold. And he sets it up. I don't know if, as um, Jacob read that, if you, you follow the repetition, but in the, those very first seven verses, that phrase, he set it up, had set up, appeared about six times in those very first seven verses. And it goes on to appear three more times in 12, 14, and 18. And that tells us that there is no doubt whose power lies behind the existence of that image. It was Nebuchadnezzar that had set it up. The whole image was covered with gold. There was no silver, certainly no feet of clay. It was completely made of gold. And for him, his kingdom would not be toppled. You know, the dream could represent the rise and fall of kingdoms. But for him, his kingdom was going to be everlasting. He doesn't just set it up, but he sets it up in a very interesting place. Here we read in that, in that very first, uh, first verse, in the plain of Dura. And that place is the place also known as China, where people long ago built the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 11, verse 4, what did they say? They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And that very same motivation drives Nebuchadnezzar as he sets up this image to himself. He wants to make a name for himself. He wants to ensure that his empire will not fall apart. That this golden statue will serve to unify his kingdom. And as he sets it up, what next does he do? Well, if you want to unify your kingdom, you have to make sure that your subjects fall in line. And he sends to gather all the officials around the empire. Verses 2 and 3. He calls them to come to the dedication. And all these officials, they, they sort of have their various responsibilities. Setraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates. You probably will have the idea of a system of democracy where we have a separation of power. But imagine a president calling the justices, the legislature, to come and do his bidding. In a sense, there's no longer a separation of power. He is in total control. And that's what he's trying to demonstrate here, that these men, those people, are just his puppets. And in a sense, he's saying to them, you know, I am the king. This is my kingdom. Whatever office you occupy, or whatever office you think you occupy, 
I can and I will get you to do whatever I command. And that is the message that he gives his herald to proclaim. Here it's not just the officials, but also the peoples of all nations and languages. He's demanding universal allegiance and worship to this statue, to this image. And the command that the herald proclaims is pretty straightforward. When you hear the sound of the horn and every kind of music, what you have to do is to bow down before this image, to fall down and worship it. You see, Music, music is actually beautiful. Good music is that, good music. It has the force to influence people's mind. But you see, you can put out the best of music and think you're worshiping. But the words there They are really empty words. See, that's why it's important what we sing and to whom we sing. And here he's he's not just playing the music for the fun of it, but he's using that as a means to lead them into the worship of this image. You have two options, he says. You either fall down and worship and then go on and live your life. And go on, if you are an official, go on and do whatever you, you've been called to do. That's all. The other option, you either refuse and be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. simple. As you stand before this image, you have a choice. You either fall down and worship or if you refuse your life. So I got to this point. I, I just wrote down this is typical. See, if you've, if you've read the stories of church history in a sense, you, you might have come across stories of the periods of times when Christians faced the worst persecutions ever. For example, when Caesar was king, they had a choice. Either you confess Caesar is Lord and go on to live your life or if you maintain that Christ is Lord, you are subject to punishment. And today around the world, there are Christians who who are experiencing that. But thankfully, we are not there yet. But also, in a sense, we are there. Because the world around us, the culture around us, puts that same pressure on you. It sets up idols and images, covers them in gold, very attractive, and demands your total allegiance. You either fall down and worship and go and live a fulfilling life, But if you dare refuse, you are either cast into the furnace of hatred, mockery, scorn, ridicule. And for many of us, 
That's one of the reasons why we just keep our faith private. You know, when we're with our friends, we don't want them to know that we are Christians. Because they are not. And so if you say you are a Christian, well, you no longer belong to the inner ring, inner circle. You'll be cast out. And no one wants to be cast out. And so, in our everyday life, we are not facing a Nebuchadnezzar. But we are in exile. If you are a true believer, the pressure that the world puts on you to conform needs you to settle this question. Who shall you worship? In verse 7, we told that everyone, all the peoples who had the sound of the horn, the pipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, nations, and languages, they fell down and worshipped. Well, they had their numerous gods. So this particular one, it's just one in a million. Can just as well just add this image to our millions and thousands of gods. And as the king looks over the plain of Dura, all he can see is a mass of people lying face down before the golden statue that he had set up. What do you think he feels? Pride and joy. He's pleased. It seems his mission is accomplished. They have acknowledged his power. He seems to have unified his kingdom. There are no rebels in the kingdom. The empire will not fall apart. But, verse 8 to 18, second heading, three Jews refused. So this Three boys at the end of chapter 2, they have been promoted and appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon by the request of Daniel. But here, the real indigents of the land, the Chaldeans probably definitely resented them as foreigners. Who are those boys to just come here and become rulers in our kingdom? And he had seen this as an opportunity to get rid of them. They have refused to obey the king. In a sense, they are being disloyal and disobedient to the king. Well, if the king will want to show that he is the king, he has to get rid of them. So what do we do? We go before the king and we accuse them. And what do they begin with? They begin by praising the king. O king, live forever. You have made a decree. Some boys have broken that. They have disobeyed. And in a sense, they come with a half-truth. Because at the end of that verse 12, they say, this man pay no attention to you, O king. Well, if they were not paying attention to the king, they wouldn't have been rulers in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, was a no-nonsense man. He would have gotten rid of them. So that wasn't true, that he didn't pay attention to the king. But the truth there is that they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is true, Okay? They wouldn't do that because they were real and true Israelites. And you can imagine, as they bring this to the king, 
realizing in chapter 1 that when Daniel went to the chief of the eunuchs, making a request, he told him that if I grant you this request, the king would chop my head off. In chapter 2, the king was angry when his men refused or couldn't interpret the dream. And here we come again and read that the king was in furious rage. Nebuchadnezzar was an angry man. And his anger could lead him to do whatever he wanted to do. And no one could stop him. But here in his anger, it's as if he's giving these boys a second chance. Well, I wasn't the one who directly proclaimed that. But he was my herald. I sent him. But in case you think that was a joke, I'm going to give you another chance. Now, when you hear the sound of all those musical instruments playing, just do it. Just fall down and worship. But again, let me repeat. If you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the burning fiery furnace. And the next statement he makes shows us again what that image represented and his very state of heart. Here's a man, a king, a powerful one, and he's bold and he says, who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Daniel had told him that his power was limited. He had absolutely forgotten that or he, or everything. But here he's saying there is no king on this, there's no God on this earth, in this world, who can deliver you out of my hands. Now, this is the height of pride. In fact, he is declaring himself to be the God of gods. Because if there is no God who can deliver you out of the hand of this man, then he is the most powerful. Again, that image, that statue, was a direct contradiction of what he had seen. And now we come to the statement that many of us would know in this story. Here are these three boys standing before this man who has declared that he is the most powerful man in the world. He is the God of gods, if you might put it that way. And what comes out of their mouth? It's quite staggering. Because this is, this is a statement of faith. This is, this is not just courage. You know, I, as someone who grew up with the authorized version, I, I always find this, I always appreciate how the KJV puts this. It says, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't have a need to give you an answer. If it be so that the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. They recognize that God could deliver them. Nebuchadnezzar could think that he is the God of gods, but he's not. There is one who could deliver them. But I say, even if God doesn't, because we cannot presume that he would deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, 
we will not serve your gods or worship this image that you had set up. And you could ask yourself, why? You see, there could be some Jew, other, certainly other Jews there, and probably just telling them, just do this and go on with your life. It's simple. In fact, you don't have to mean it. It doesn't have to be a real, just, you know, in your mind, just say, I'm not, I'm not bowing down, but I will bow. Just do it and, and go on live, to live your life. And Were they just being rebellious? Were they just not wanting to be part of the inner circle? You see, those boys were Jews. They were the real through Israelites. They must have read and certainly would have read God's laws in Exodus 20. After God had redeemed Israel from slavery, after he had saved them, after he had brought them through the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments begins. As the Lord spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, secondly, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of it, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. And as the Israelites heard this, they heard the Ten Commandments, beginning with this first two. And in chapter 24, what did they say? All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agreed that they would do every single thing he has said. We will keep all the commandments, all the laws. Fine, good. We would not worship other gods. We would not bow down to any images. But what was the first sin that Israel committed right there in the wilderness? In chapter 32, as Moses was on the mountain, they came to Aaron. Well, this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. The very first thing was to break the first and the second commandment. They made a golden image and bowed down to it and said, this is the God that brought us out of Israel. And you might be thinking, well, idolatry is just, it's not a sin of today, it's a sin of the past. But in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the whole of mankind, what is the sin that he indicts mankind with? In Romans 1 verse 21, he says, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give, give, give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. My very first two years in Cyprus, I never knew what a Turkish eye was until someone pointed it out to me. And now everywhere I go, I see it. I blame that person. But you see, when you talk to many of them, they tell you they do not believe in God. But somehow they are convinced that this thing will repel evils and keep them safe from harm. You see, the fact is this. When people reject the God of revelation, they do not go on believing nothing. They believe anything and everything. So when your friends tell you, that God thing, I'm done with it, I don't do it. No. There is something else there. And you might say, well, I don't have images in my house that I bow to. Well, neither do I. 
But what about the idols of success? That consumes our whole life. The idols of money. The idols of pleasure. And those of friends that if we stand before them and say we are Christians, we know that we are done for. You see, an idol is anything you trust to give you what only the true and living God can. That is why when Jesus sums up the commandments, he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Friends, the fact is this, that none of us here this day does that. And each and every one of us are guilty of a sin of idolatry. None of us loves God with all our hearts. None of us loves God with all our soul, all our mind. If you're honest to yourself, there are those things in your life that you believe that if I have this, my life is fulfilled. But in the end, they'll disappoint because they cannot give you what God alone can bring you, can give you. And that is why we all need the good news of Jesus. Because you can't keep that law. Israel, that we are at the same, the pass through the Red Sea, that we are saved, but they were delivered by God. The first sin was breaking the first two. You see, the only way we can stand before God, the only way we can truly worship Him, it's if Jesus is our Savior. Because it is only Him that truly kept all the commands and laws of God. He was the only one who fulfilled it. And he did not just fulfill it. He laid down his life for each and every one of us who break God's law. And who come to him and say, in of myself, I can't. Christ is my only plea. And as we look at this, this statement of those boys, I know we could ask ourselves, if I stand before the king, what am I going to say? Well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But for today, God gives us the grace to stand today. And that courage, that faith, that boldness, whatever you may call it, it didn't come from them. It came from the God that is served and the worship. See, they obeyed God's law not because they were certain that he was going to deliver them, but because that was what they had to do. You see, I heard a story of a father who while well, advising, I don't know if it's true or not, but this is how we, the writer put it. He called her and said, there's a word that will guide you in this life. Just one word. No. You see, that is a word that many of us probably have to learn to say. Because many times when we know that we have to obey God and not man, it's because we are struggling to just say the word, no. We are scared of what people will think of us. We, we feel the pressure of conforming to the word. And we know that if we said no, 
we're probably going to end up in a burning fiery furnace. But again, the only way we can stand before God, the only way we can refuse to bow to our idols is if we come to Christ. And obedience to God is not what makes us right with Him because we cannot perfectly obey Him. But we obey God because we are right with Him and because we want to please Him and because He's He alone that deserves our worship and our service, not man. So we've seen the image that He set up See why the Hebrew boys refused. And lastly, God delivers them in 19 to 30. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, we know, is an angry man. And he cannot stand this courage and boldness of those boys. And we can see, as the writer says, Daniel describes for us the expression of his face changed. There was real rage and anger and fury. And maybe to intimidate them or cause them to change their position, he, he orders that the furnace be increased, the heat be increased several more times, be increased than it usually was. And he orders that they be tied. He bound them. And those who were, who were doing this and who had the assignment of putting, of throwing these boys, of casting them into this furnace because the heat was great and the furnace overheated. They told that they lost their lives. And these men, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. And they are dead. What is the expectation? As I try to illustrate to the children, if, this, if I just keep this little finger, uh, candle rider, if I put my hand on, on the fire for some minutes, it's going to burn me. Can you imagine being thrown into a furnace? Even before you fall, you should be dead and gone. It's not just that you're going to be burned. The lack of oxygen there is going to kill you. It is death. That is what is supposed to happen. You are supposed to be gone, be done for. That's the punishment. That is the natural thing that should happen. But... The king was astonished and rose up in haste. It's as if he, he sat there and wanted to enjoy and have the pleasure. He had the pleasure of seeing people bow down to the image. Now he wants to enjoy the pleasure of seeing these boys born. But that's not what happens. Because he doesn't just see three men. There are three men who are thrown in. But now he sees four. He doesn't just see four. He sees them walking in the midst of the fire. You can imagine. Three, we are thrown into the fire. We are cast into the fire. But now there is four walking around. And the appearance of the fault is like a son of the gods. Here, yeah, I know uh, many people have tried to say that this is Christ or an angel, but we cannot say for a certain that this is Christ from this, from this passage. But what we can say for, for certain is that God's presence was there with them, 
physically, God's presence was right there with them in the fire. And that is the promise of God for us. Because it is possible here that there are some of us who are in a sort of fiery furnace. And it's as if the whole world is on us. But God's promise for us, for those of us who are in Christ, is that in the midst of that, He is with us. Yes, this was a real miracle. God's presence was there with them. And in a sense, it's a fulfillment of God's word to Isaiah in Isaiah 43. Which is a promise for everyone whom he has redeemed. It says, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Again, Jesus, talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and have nothing more that they can do. The worst Nebuchadnezzar could do was to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. That was the worst he could do. The worst the world can do is to kill a believer. That is the worst. The worst that your friends can do is to mock you, to scorn you. That is the worst. But Jesus says, beyond that, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him. Whoever he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, those boys recognize that the person they should fear is not the king, but God. The person we should fear is not man, but God. And Jesus reminds his disciples, and for many of us today, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Friends, I, I can't reach into your heart. Neither can you reach into mine. But God can. And he knows what you are experiencing today. And the promise for everyone who believes and trusts in him is a promise of his presence with us. Another verse in 1 Peter. Peter was writing to Christians who were scattered. And as though he had this, this story in mind, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fairy trial when it comes upon you to test you. When all the trials come, Peter says, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. We live in a world that doesn't want God. In a sense, we live in exile. And those who truly want to live for God, who want to obey him, might not be facing the persecutions from tyrants. But there are trials that come with living for God. And on a side note, that is why the prosperity gospel, which I don't like adding the word gospel to it, but for the sake of describing what it says it is, is a lie. Because it promises you that when you come to Christ, all your problems are gone. Sometimes I wonder, have they actually cracked up Open a Bible. 
because some of Paul's letters were in prison. Jesus, who saved us, says no servant can be greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So the truth is, the trials will come, but God promises that his presence is there with us, and he will deliver us in the end. He's able to deliver us when we refuse to serve other gods, even with the threat of a burning fiery furnace. And the last verses there, the king orders that they should come out, to bring them out. And here all the satraps and prefects, governors, and all those who had accused them, they gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over their bodies. The hair of their heads were not harmed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Many of us who have gathered around fire, you, you know you're there when you leave. Even while you're there, your, your body or your clothes begins to smell. But here they were cast into this fire. And there was no smell. This was a clear miracle. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that. He blesses God. He, he, he actually says, well, this God has delivered the servants who trusted in him. They set aside my command. They yielded up their bodies to serve. They did all this for them, for God. And you're wondering, what should be his response? This is a clear miracle. What should be Nebuchadnezzar's response? His response should be to fall down and worship this God. But what does he do? He issues a decree. Yeah, this is one of the gods. Nobody should speak anything against him. If you do that, well, tear you limb from limb. This is him again. In the face of a miracle, he doesn't still worship this God. He says no other God is able to rescue in this way. He recognizes that. He even promotes the three boys. But he refuses to worship God in the face of this miracle. And you see, people would say, well, if there was just a miracle, I would believe. The same people who tell you if there was a miracle, they would believe, will tell you that somehow, well, it's impossible that, you know, a God created this, this world. You know, somehow billions of years, it just popped up into existence and we're here. But if there was a miracle, I would believe. And people are in search of miracles. Yet, here is a miracle and he doesn't believe. This is, this is basically every human being. Because people will just explain away the miracle. Well, this is one of the gods. You know, we can all go on to live our lives. His heart was not changed at a deep level by this experience. No. He remained the same Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, I don't know, what would it take you to worship this God? What miracle would take you to worship this God? Because again, Jesus came and he performed miracles. And what was the reaction? Let us get rid of this man. Because people would rather hold on to their idols and their gods than worship the true and living God. See, that's why, and I'll finish with this, 
I read from 1 John chapter 5. The only way, the only way is actually through a miracle. The only way is if we are born of God. The only way is if you've come to put your trust and faith in Christ. In that section, in that chapter 5, John ends warning us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. How can we give up the idols and worship the true and living God? It's if we have been born of him. And today, what Nebuchadnezzar tried to achieve in uniting his kingdom, in bringing every tongue and tribe and language to worship him and worship his idol, Christ has achieved that on the cross. And here in church this morning, there are people of every tongue and every tribe and language who are gathered to worship the true and living God. Are you part of that? Or is this Sunday just another day for you? So I'll just close with that question again. Who will you worship? Is it the true and living God? Or is it your idols? Let us pray before we sing. Father in heaven, we thank you that though in our natural state, Lord, we we resist to worship you. But Lord, we thank you that what we cannot do and what we fail to do, Christ has achieved for us. Lord, we thank you that he is our only plea. Lord, you know each and every one of us who are gathered here this morning. You know our hearts. You know that the devil comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And his desire will be to steal this word from our hearts. Lord, our prayer is that you would do what you alone can do. And Lord, cause that these words will come alive in our hearts and in our lives. But Lord, all our days will be singing. To you be all the glory. To you alone be all the adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Arise and sing our closing hymn. To God be the glory.